0: Tristan Reese sprang into the public consciousness in 2017 when he and his partner Biff told their non-traditional pregnancy story in the mainstream media. He and Biff are also the adoptive parents of Biff's biological niece and nephew. They are proud to have expanded the public conversation about trans reproductive justice, queer families, and what it means to be a father. He regularly tells the unique story of his family's creation to audiences across the country. He is also the director of family formation at Family Equality Council, a national nonprofit dedicated to supporting LGBTQ plus families and those who wish to form them. Nice. Um, okay. Well, I'm going to tell my story for the grown-ups in a little in a minute but we all know that grown-ups' stories are boring um, and have lots of long words in them. So I'm gonna try and tell my story in a way that is not boring, but I need you guys' help. So, who here has ever had to deal with, other people call them bullies, I call them sad people, because happy people don't put other people down, right? So have any of you had to deal with a sad person who has tried to put someone down or be mean to them? Some, a little bit, you all have a very privileged lives. That's a joke for the grown-ups. So what is something that you can do or say when someone's being mean to someone else? Yes. Don't do that. I love that. Okay, so whenever I go like this, sometimes uh, in our culture, the, the fist is a symbol of that we need to stand up for what's right. So whenever I go like this, I want you guys to say, don't do that. Thank you. Okay, so when I was born, the... Doctors and everybody else thought that I was a girl Because I had the same body parts that a lot of girls have And so what that means is as I got a little bit older I felt inside of me that I was actually a boy And some people saw me playing with boy things like trucks And said you can't play with that because those are boys toys That's right Don't do that because toys go for everyone Right? And then as I got a little bit older, I went to a doctor and I explained what was going on, and I started taking special medicine that makes me look on the outside more like how I feel on the inside. And a lot of people told me that I shouldn't do that because I wasn't supposed to be a boy. I was born a girl. And what do we say when someone tries to keep someone else down? That's right. And as I got a little bit older... I started to have romantic feelings for people and I thought what if one day I could get married and people told me people like you don't get to get married That's right and guess what I did find someone and I did get married And I fell in love with him And I learned that there are lots of different ways you can love people You can love people like you get married to someone and then you can love people like when they're your kids because the person that I married had a really amazing uh, niece and nephew, and the people that were supposed to take care of them were mean to them. Mm -mm. So they came to live with us, and that meant that I got to be a dad, which is something that I never thought I would be able to do. And then I wanted to give my kids a baby sibling, a baby brother or sister. And a lot of people said two men can't have a baby or two men shouldn't have a baby. Mm -mm. Because it turns out some boys, if they're super special like me, can have babies. And that's what I got to do. And so me and the person that I married and fell in love with and was raising kids with, we made our own baby. And his name is Leo. and He's two years old. And now we're a family with Five people and sometimes people tell other kids tell my kids oh it's weird that you have two dads or that you had a dad who gave a ba- had a baby that's right so now there are five of us and we all live together in Portland happily ever after thank you Oh, it's so amazing to be here with you all. I feel like my entire um, my entire life's work of doing social justice has uh, been interwoven with Unitarian communities all over the country. Um, so I'm, I'm so excited to be here at this new stage of my life. Um, to begin with, uh, are any of you all from small towns? Yeah, ish. Okay, great. I appreciate your honesty. Uh, I'm from a very small conservative town called Lancaster, California, in the middle of the Mojave Desert, next to Edwards Air Force Base, uh, two hours northeast of Los Angeles, which you know, if you don't have a driver's license because you're a kid, that is like a light year away, basically. Uh, my parents moved there from Canada. Why? Who knows? <laughs> one of life's many mysteries, so instead of being raised in Vancouver, I was raised in Lancaster. Um, and when I was a, a child and an, adolescence, uh, an adolescent, we didn't, uh, we didn't have any language to talk about LGBTQI issues at all. Um, even though it's not so long ago, um, and we were actually not even allowed to have a Gay-Straight Alliance, which is the club in high school that you form. Um, now in the state of California and in Oregon, um, those, are, those are legally mandated. If a student says that we, we want to have this kind of club, they have to be able to do that. Um, we didn't have that in, in my school, and so I had very little support growing up um, and very little language to understand what was going on with me. Um, however, I, did, I do remember being about nine years old and coming home from play practice. It will surprise none of you to know that I enjoy the, the theater. Um, and telling my parents that I was a gay man trapped in a girl's body. And I know at the time they were sort of like, kids say the darndest things, you know? <laughs> okay, whatever. Um, And that actually ended up being the joke through high school. My friends would often say, oh, that's our friend who's a a gay man trapped in a woman's body. Um, uh, Which was funny at the time and then became increasingly less funny as time um, went by. And the feeling of being literally trapped in the wrong body became um, really overwhelming and extremely painful for me. Um, The word that we now use to describe that feeling is dysphoria. Um, the feeling of either profound discomfort with your body or discomfort with the way the world sees your body. Um, And puberty is hard for everyone, so it's not a contest. Um, But if it was a contest, I bet that my puberty was harder than yours. (laughs) Um, Because right, we're all always being policed around our genders. Right, Women are always being told to be more ladylike, take up less room. Men are always being told to man up. I work a lot with high school students, and even now, um, when I say... How many of the the young men in the room have been told or or are told now to to man up, um, don't be a sissy, Uh, every hand is raised? I'm like, really? What year is this? I asked one of them, when was the last time that you were told to man up? He said, oh, I'm on the football team and I broke my leg. You broke your leg and they told you to man up? This is, when we say like toxic masculinity, there it is. Um, But... um, Uh, Even as I sort of started to come into my own around my transgender identity, I continued to feel that kind of pressure um, from people uh, that, okay, fine, if you're going to be a man, be a man, but don't ever remind us that you're any different from other men, Um, which felt like a new way of telling me, you know, to either be more ladylike or man up, um, to just conform to that rigid idea of, of what we think you should be. Um, and I am sorry, but I did not get a sex change to continue to be rigid around everyone else's ideas about what it means to be transgender or to be a man. And uh, my first experience with Unitarians was actually in 2007. Um, I was working for the National LGBTQ Task Force. Um, I was living my, my childhood dream of being a professional, pissed-off queer that is a job. It wasn't, my, it wasn't like on my business cards, but that was basically my job. I got to travel the country and work to help local communities defend themselves against anti-gay, anti-trans attacks uh, at the ballot box or through the legislature. It was a total dream job. Um, most, most anti-gay or anti-trans ballot measures don't happen in Portland. They happen in McMinnville. They don't happen in Detroit, they happen in Kalamazoo, Michigan. They don't happen in Cleveland, they ha- Ohio, they happen in Bowling Green, Ohio. So those smaller communities are, are usually where the, um, the truly anti-LGBT um, organizations go to test out some of these messages and to try to get a foothold so then they can move in. And so I got to go to places like Bowling Green and Kalamazoo uh, to work on some of these issues. Um, and people... LGBT and progressive people in those small communities, those are the ones who really know what it means to stand with each other um, through diversity. They don't have the privilege of saying, well, lesbians go over here and gay men go over here. No, 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 there's only like 24 of them total. So they all go to the one bar. They all go to the one Unitarian Church, right? They all know what it means to be in community with each other. And probably more importantly, they know very clearly um, what happens when they are divided, Because for them, outside of the bubbles that they've created, homophobia and transphobia is so close they could literally touch it. And so I love going to these small communities. And in 2007, we got whispers that perhaps in the state of California, the Supreme Court um, might rule in California to allow same-sex marriage. And um, that anti-gay forces were going to try and put that on a ballot measure to take that away. And so in 2007, uh, my boss sat me down and said, at the time I was living in New York City, and she sat me down and said, well, we're gonna send you to California because we think that they're gonna try to qualify a ballot measure. I said, cool, I'll go wherever you want. And they said, we're gonna send you to Lancaster? (laughs) Please, God. (laughs) Lancaster, California? Okay, that's my hometown. And they were like, okay, well, it's either that or Bakersfield. (laughs) And I was like, if there's worse than Lancaster, it's Bakersfield. (laughs) Uh, I'm getting deep in, like, middle California geography here, so be forgiven if you don't know what any of these places are. Um, but they, so they sent me to Lancaster um, to go back to my hometown, which I had sort of fled and changed my gender, Um, and the place where I was able to do my very first organizing in Lancaster um, was at the Unitarian Church, Uh, and it was my first time being in a spiritual community. They actually had a long, like, long debate about whether Unitarians can be considered people of faith or not. I guess that's a Thing that you all have, so that was very confusing to me. But <laughs> other than that, um, it was this wonderful place, and they were one hundred percent ready to put their bodies physically in front of people who were signature gathering to try and take away the right for LGBT couples to marry the person that they love. Um, and I had never seen that before. And we we spent many many months blocking these signature gatherers with our bodies. Um, But we failed in that effort, and Proposition 8 in 2008 made it to the ballot box, Um, which is, uh, I came back to California for Proposition 8. Uh, And once again, the Unitarian congregation uh, welcomed us into their folds, the Santa Monica Unitarian Congregation. I was in charge of West Los Angeles. Then I was leading hundreds of, of volunteers and staff by that point in my career. Um, and does anyone know what happened in in 2008? What happened with Proposition 8? Do folks remember? It passed, yeah, which is confusing, but it means that we lost, and there was between 100 and 200 days when same-sex couples could get married, and then it was taken away, and we lost by millions of votes. Um, We lost pretty badly in California, and uh, for me as a young person, having put literally my blood, sweat, and tears into that campaign. Uh, it was devastating. I was used to it by then. Uh, in that sort of time period, we were losing a lot, the LGBT movement was. Um, but the day after we lost, the Unitarian Church called me and said, can we have a party to celebrate you all? Um, and they welcomed us into their, their home, and they made food and cupcakes, and it, felt, it was a party. It was not a, a wake And they printed out these little uh, quotes that reminded us of how many social justice movements had experienced losses and still made huge gains and reminded us that um, who we are and our validity as human beings is not dependent on what other people think of us, Um, that we are all all worthy and, and, and worthy of dignity just the way that we are. Um, And it was hard to see that and feel that love and support given the amount of grief that I felt at that time. Um, But I remember it so so clearly and my mom was actually there for that because even though I was in my 20s Because I had gotten very sick on that campaign. I got appendicitis Uh, And when I went to the hospital, they were like you need surgery and I was like no I do not I have a bladder infection and I just need antibiotics and I'm gonna go home and they were like nope you need surgery. Uh, and I was like, no, you don't understand. I'm working on a campaign. Election day is in two weeks. I can't have surgery. And she said, oh, don't worry. You will be better in time to vote. <laughs> and I was like, vote? No, I run an office. We have thousands of volunteers. No, but it turns out that the body needs what it needs, and it needed surgery. So my mom came down to take care of me, and I couldn't drive because I was on all those medications. So two days later, my mom was driving me around uh, L.A. to different volunteer Things to still be training, but like from a wheelchair because I was had surgery. Uh, So my mom was there uh, with at the amazing Unitarian Church, Um, and on that particular day was actually when um, the marches had begun. Um, So thousands of people all over LA were marching in the streets protesting the passage of Proposition Eight, and I remember sitting down with my mother and one of the Unitarian folks and I said, should we reschedule? And and, you know, my mom held my hand and she said, sweetheart, I think that you guys have, you're done. You, You did everything you could and I think you should spend the time to celebrate what you have done. And if other people want to pick up the mantle now, let them. But you all can rest easy knowing that you did everything you could and you did amazing work. And that was an incredible lesson that she taught me um, and an incredible lesson that the Unitarians gave us as well. Um, but doing, doing that sort of gay marriage work was especially hard for me. Um, as a transgender person, uh, I did not ever think that I would get to get gay married. Um, not because I didn't want to, I definitely did. Uh, and not because I'm not marriage material, because obviously I am. <laughs> um, but I didn't ever know a transgender person who was married, or even in a healthy relationship. And I truly thought... When I decided to transition, I was choosing between two paths. One is like a a life of normalcy, um, where, yes, I would be lying to myself and everyone around me, but I'd get to have a family one day. Um, And the other was to be happy, um, and I chose happy over normal. Um, And I thought I was closing the door to all those other things. Um, And then a couple of years later, I met the person that I would go on to marry. uh, And he is not trans. He's just like a regular gay guy. He's not regular. He's special. <laughs> uh, don't tell, tell him that I said that, but you know what I mean. Uh, he's not transgender, and he had never been with a transgender person before. But you know, we made it work. Uh, I think all of us know what it's like to fall in love with someone, and they've got something that's different, different about them, and we learn to love that as much as, uh, as much as they may have hated it in themselves. Um, and we got a phone call one day um, that his sister's kids needed a place to stay. Uh, that that she couldn't take care of them, and they were going to go into foster care. Um, And so we became parents overnight to two very, very traumatized children who were one and three years old. Um, Parenting is already hard. Going from zero children to two children, I do not recommend, uh, without any preparation. Most people, if they're going to adopt, they, like, go to classes and buy a bed. We did not have that luxury at all, um, but we, again, we sort of cobbled it together and made it work, and over the next five years or so, um, we, we, we transitioned from being their uncles to being their dads, um, and we legally adopted them in 2015, and uh, that was a really beautiful moment for our family. Um, at that time, I had stopped doing the professional pissed-off queer work because uh, I didn't have anything left for my kids at the end of the night. Uh, I, di- I, I didn't. Um, there was a time when I was the development director, so I was doing all the fundraising for immigration equality. So I was working with LGBT asylum seekers and refugees. Um, and so I would literally sometimes spend my days like driving out to detention centers and then sitting um, across from uh, LGBT people from around the world who had been brutally tortured Um, who were in jumpsuits and wearing shackles um, because that is what we do even when someone comes to our borders legally and surrenders themselves and applies for asylum which is part of our process even pre the current administration under Obama this is what we did to them. Um, We put them in detention centers which are the same as prisons. And for LGBT people, often our government says, well, we can't keep them safe um, with other detainees, so we'll put them in solitary confinement. And then there are these huge, there's this huge backlog, sometimes months and months and months, three to six months, um, which we know is torture. And so often I would spend my days sitting with people who were tortured in their co- countries of origin and then were being tortured by our government. Um, it's really, really, really hard to come home to a three-year-old crying about not getting a second cookie when you have spent your days hearing from queer people who have escaped torture. Um, And so I I had to leave that work. It was too hard. Um, And we moved to Portland and I started doing work that was less hard. Um, Still important but less hard so I had a little more for my kids and uh, and that's when I had this vision of us becoming a family with three kids instead of two. Um, and that's when I approached my partner and I told him that I wanted us to have another kid. And he was like, that's great. We always talked about, you know, fostering uh, LGBT youth. That was always our plan before our other kids came into our lives. And I said, no, that's not what I mean. Um, I mean, having a baby <laughs> that I give birth to. And he was like, Nope. I'm not going to do that. And I was like, really? Uh, and he was like, I'm sorry. I love you very much. And if you want this, I will consider it. But no, this is, this is the worst idea you've ever had, which is saying a lot because I have had a lot of really bad ideas. Um, but uh, he did eventually backpedal uh, and did some soul searching and uh, remembered on his own. I did not have to remind him that we had really taken, we, we had done a lot for him and his family. We kind of cleaned up a big mess on his family's side. Um, and I had trusted him to lead us through this process. And I had said yes unequivocally to taking in these kids. And, and so he kind of felt like maybe it was my turn to do something a little bit crazy. Um, and so... Uh, he said yes, and I went to the doctor, and by then I had actually known hundreds of transgender people all over the world um, who've, who've had babies and given birth. So for a lot of people, when they saw my story, um, it, was, it felt very new to them. My friend Matt, uh, his son Blake that he gave birth to after he had transitioned, so he had a beard and everything, um, his son Blake turned 20 yesterday. So for two decades, transgender men have been having babies. Um, Most of them were smarter than me, and they didn't tell anyone. Um, But lesson learned. Uh, uh, I live in a world of rainbows and unicorns. So when I got pregnant, I was like, this is awesome. We should tell people that transgender men can have babies. When I went to the doctor to get put on testosterone the first time, my doctor told me that it was going to make me sterile. Um, that it would render my uterus an uninhabitable environment. Those are his exact words. This is like 15 years ago, and I still remember that. And that is not science at all. There has never been any evidence to suggest that testosterone causes sterility. Um, But in in many countries, if you want to transition, you actually do um, have to undergo sterilization procedures. Um, You do have to have that part of your anatomy taken out in order to be legally considered male or or female. Um, In many advantages, in Sweden and Denmark and Finland, uh, countries that often were always like, those are the good countries. I'm like, not if you're trans. But anyway. um, So that was not true and I wanted to tell other people that that was not true. That you you can have a family if you're transgender in a lot of ways. You can adopt like we did. You can have biological kids. All the doors still open for you. Um, I thought that people were going to be stoked about this story some people were stoked about this story. Um, one, my, I got a lot of amazing letters when we decided to tell our story publicly. Um, my favorite one was from a woman in the Midwest. She had also adopted her niece, like we had. Um, and she wrote to me on Facebook, and she said that she thought it was miraculous that my body, in all its glory, um, could, give, could create new life while also giving me the life that I deserved. And I was like, it's happening, you know? Rainbows and unicorns. Um, But uh, sort of alongside that, of course, um, was a really, really, really brutal backlash. Um, And I think the more um, segmented we get culturally, the further away we get from other people, um, and and the less we understand um, how much... Uh, bias and hatred and bigotry is still out there. I had forgotten, I'll be honest about that. So it was very surprising to me when um, uh, I started getting messages from people telling me that I was a monster, um, that I was going to give birth to a monster, Um, and one particular person um, actually said this on a public forum, which is shocking to me, but she said, as a Christian, I hope that you give birth to a dead baby. Because a dead baby is better off than a baby that has to be born to you. Don't do that, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, where were you all that morning when I was reading that comment? (laughs) I could have really used your help. Um, uh, And I was about six months pregnant at that point. So I really should have been spending my time focused on growing a human uh, and not all of that out there. But it was a really important reminder for me that all of that is out there. um, And that even as we build our bubbles, like, like people who are living in small towns already know, it's right there. And there is so much we can do to make sure that people like me and families like ours have everything we need to thrive. And that our transgender youth and our transgender community members have everything they need to thrive. And for me, when people ask me what can you do, a couple of things are, are what I encourage. Um, one is what people did for me, which is to really sh- show up. And A, protect me from those things. Um, and B, do education for people who need it. That lady, she's gone. We can't reach her. We just need to report those things and then move on. But there are more people than that who are like, so what is trans? What is the, how does that work again? I'm like, yes, those are my people. And they are not actually going to be able to be reached by me. They're going to be able to be reached by you. The way that the psychology of bias works is that when someone is in those nascent stages, when they're in those early stages, and they're like, so tell me more about this. What does that mean? Same in in anti-racism. When someone says, so what does the Black Lives Matter thing mean? Great. You can reach them. And so those are the people where you can say, oh, I'd love to tell you more about that. You know, being transgender means that someone was assigned a certain sex at birth, and they know inside of themselves that they are something other than that. They're working hard to live their truths and they face a lot of barriers. Um, so that's one thing that people can do. The second is um, don't just show up for us when things are hard. When you see a story about a transgender, gender nonconforming, conforming non-binary person doing amazing work, solving a big problem, winning a Nobel Prize, winning an Emmy, share those stories because that starts to change the conversation about us as uh, beleaguered people who are either always being hurt or are always somehow perpetuating hurt. And it changes the story into us being people that others are really excited to share the planet with. Also in that frame, it's much easier for you to have that conversation. If you say, the television show Pose just got renewed for a third season. And then your uncle is like, what is that about? or Aren't they drag queens? In that frame of, isn't this amazing? It is so much easier for you to say, actually, they're not drag queens. They're transgender. Do you want to know more about that? Or however you want to do it in your language. Um, So those are two really clear things that are specific that you can do. And I saw people doing this in ways large and small throughout my pregnancy. My pregnancy was actually like a good news story for a lot of people. And it gave them a chance to sit down with their kids and to share that like, you know, men can have babies, if they're super special men, like me. Um, Yeah. And then, in July of 2017, um, I gave birth to my son, Leo, and it was the best moment of my entire life, uh, because I'm a nerd, and I really like science, and if you had said, like, is, like, childbirth magic? I would have been like, no, it is science. Also, it's not a big deal, because it's how we all got here. But having done it, I'm like, oh, this is magic. It is like a miracle. There was not a person, and then you grew a person inside of your body, and now there's another person. I couldn't, it was so awesome. And my dad was in the room. He was like my doula. Um, Because he's a doctor, so I sort of thought, like, if things go wrong, they will listen to, like, an old white doctor man. Um, He was useless, by the way. He was not helpful. Um, but that thing happens where, when a baby is born, uh, there's something crazy. We don't know why, but our brains, everyone in the room, not just the birthing person, our brains are just like flooded with a rush of oxytocin, the love hormone. And everyone in the whole room is just like, uh, which is what happened. And then my dad grabbed my face and there's just like tears streaming down his face, he's a 78-year-old Canadian doctor, and he holds my face in his hands and he says, there is a God after all. So funny, because my dad is not a religious person, um, but you know, chemicals, it's like we were on all on drugs. Um, that's like literally what what it was except our natural drugs from our brains Um, and then they put him you know on my chest and it was like oh he's not a monster he's amazing Um, and if he was a monster I would have loved him just as much as it turns out Uh, and that's when I understood that you know however your kids show up you're like you know my kid is deaf we're all gonna learn sign language like whatever happens your kid shows up and you're like fuck yes I'm gonna do whatever I need to do for this kid, um, which I also felt with my older kids, but it had happened much slower, you know, over time as I fell in love with them and became their actual dad. Um, Yeah, and then after um, Leo was born, and he was amazing, he's still amazing. He's sick right now, so he's a handful, but he's still amazing. Um, After he was born, you know, uh, I sat down with my partner and I said, so I don't want to do like public stuff anymore. Um, I just want to be a dad from now on. And he was like, um, I don't think that that is a good idea. Because um, you have a real opportunity to not just be like the pregnant man, but to now keep going and keep saying it's not just a click, clickbait is what they say. Um, It's not just something to like grab attention and headlines. Like, we're a family. And there's like a whole story that goes beyond that. Um, So he's like, of course if you want to stop, you can. And um, I, I think that you can keep doing good and I think you can keep telling our story um and of course he is smart which is why I married him and he's also very cute um and so after a couple of months as Leo got a little bit older I sort of decided to keep telling our story and uh and that brings me to you all today so that's our that's our our family story thank you